Fair warning, the following contains disturbing sexual imagery and criminality. The names and identifying information of the perpetrator of these crimes and of victims have been changed to protect all concerned. Everyone listening should proceed with a thoughtful consideration of utmost caution. These are real crimes committed by real people. Human sexuality fills the space between pleasure and desperation, reflecting the limits of our flawed understanding of the most intimate part of who we are. Around us, cinematic fantasies of violence and larceny, of terrorism and despair, are presented as entertainment. And then, as we approach sexual criminality, all fantasies become guilty until proven otherwise. We come to a place where ignorance is the last stop as sex becomes crime. You have now entered Sex Crime Central. His name, Clive McDaniel. The time, we stand witness to the dawn of his becoming. Of what he will become, he himself does not know. His occupation, unskilled laborer. At present, a man on a mission, Clive McDaniel is only 28 years old. He has spent at least 14 of those years making the pilgrimage from curiosity to desire, from desire to an all-consuming craving, a craving that he doesn't even have the words to describe. He has only just now finally landed square in his current state of resentment and hopelessness. He resents all the people in the world who seem to have found the love and the sex that he has been denied. Clive is confident, if one can be confident in one's hopelessness, knowing with the greatest clarity that no woman would ever want to be with someone like him. Clive has been thinking and planning for a long time about what he believes is the only solution that makes sense. From this journey of desperation and desire, Clive will embark on a journey into a frightening world, a world of sexual perversity. Clive's only luggage on this journey to Sex Crime Central is a mysterious little bag he makes sure to never let out of his sight. He'll need that bag and its contents to make the stuff of all his dreams finally come true. Dreams he's determined to see made into reality in the very unreal world of Sex Crime Central. Clive had always looked the spitting image of his Appalachian ancestors. His pale, thin body was the perfect shape for squirming in and out of coal mines, had there been any within a thousand miles, and there were not. His hairline was already receding sharply, and the hair he had left to him showed signs of moving out altogether, if he made it to age 30. He was, at a glance, the apple that had not fallen far from the tree of all the other very white men in his very white family line. Clive was never a good student, but he was always a good boy, if, by good, one meant compliant, quiet, shy, 
The soft-spoken young man felt desperate to do something, anything, to grab something real, to know that he'd lived a life, to feel that he'd become a man before he died. Having grown up in an anti-intellectual family, Clive, never the brightest, failed to achieve the sort of academic success that would have made his father question Clive's manhood. For Clive's father, financial success was for sellouts, because real men worked with their hands. What else could he have thought? Because, after all, he was a real man, and he had never known any more than manual labor his whole life. Guys who wore nice clothes? Wimps. Men who worked in an office? Pathetic brown nosers who had to kiss ass to even show their faces. Not for him. No son of his was going to be that kind of pussy. For father and son, a steady diet of beer and TV substituted for what other Americans thought of as success. Clive shirking all school-related accomplishments allowed him to avoid drawing the scorn of his father. His invisibility at school went hand in glove with his lack of meaningful friendships. After all, what boys would want to come over to his house if they had to face Clive's father and his needling of them about their own pathetic compliance with the academic expectations encouraged by their parents. Clive did his best to wrap his head around his father's guidance and lifestyle, but something was missing, and it wasn't just friends, because Clive did get used to being alone. In fact, he relished it. It was a relief to not have to interact with others. Looking at his scrawny mother, however, as she scurried around the kitchen taking care of the menfolk, he thought to himself, but at least my dad has someone. Of course Clive turned to masturbation in his attempts to relieve the most superficial of his sexual needs, but the longing for a more meaningful connection to a real human being never stopped. This unending longing for someone in his life led Clive to fantasize and to hope but over time, hope became hopelessness, and hopelessness became desperation. And in his desperation, Clive began to scheme. And when his schemes finally eclipsed his fear of consequences, Clive made his move. With the small amount of money he'd saved up from his low-paying job, Clive got into his beat-up old truck and drove to a small town on the border of a neighboring state. There, he checked into a motel and sat a moment before picking up the local directory and calling an escort service. He quickly made his arrangements and, after lying to the person who attempted to qualify Clive's financial situation over the phone, he sat back, waiting for the sex worker to appear. For the first time in his life, an actual woman was coming to see him. It was so exciting. Hearing the knock at the door, Clive rose quickly and opened it to see a black woman who towered over his slight frame. He invited the woman in. Have you got the money, she asked. He again lied and said he did. Let's see it, said the assertive and experienced woman. At this point, Clive had to admit he really didn't have the money, and the woman snorted in disgust and turned to leave. And that is when Clive made his move. He quickly reached into the small bag he'd brought with him. He snatched out a dead blow hammer, a hammer hollowed in the inside, filled with lead shot, such that when one used it to strike a blow, it would not bounce, it would not disfigure any fine cabinetry. 
This hammer offered the same action as a lead sap or a blackjack right out of an old detective movie. Clive struck the unsuspecting woman on the back of the head, but whether it was out of his lack of experience or his inhibitions about hurting someone, his blow was utterly ineffective. Once struck, the woman began yelling as she tried desperately to escape the death trap that the room had become. She allowed nothing to impede her, and she made her way out into the hallway. In the hallway of the motel, she continued to scream as she made her way up and then back down, going over the same hallway again and again, screaming at the top of her lungs. Clive sat miserably in his room, wishing it would all just stop, that everything would just go away. What was I thinking, he wondered. What have I done? The noisy disturbance eventually resulted in the law showing up in the shape of a single deputy sheriff. It was a quiet night in a small town, and as this incident was the only interesting thing happening in that part of the world, unsurprisingly, shortly after the first deputy appeared, another joined him. Together, the two men began investigating the scene, and the first thing they wanted to see after questioning the victim was what she said Clive had hit her with. Clive gestured to the bag, and one of the officers opened it and pulled out the hammer. Glancing grimly at his colleague as he handed the hammer to him, the deputy reached back into the bag and pulled out in quick succession a length of rope, duct tape, and then most ominously, a large hunting knife. The deputies professionally assessed the crime scene. On the one hand, an obvious attempt to physically overwhelm a sex worker with a dead blow hammer in a motel room. The rope and the duct tape seemed to indicate a plan to restrain her. The knife? Well, that was obvious. But on the other hand, the alleged assailant was a white man, like the two officers, and the sex worker was a black woman from out of the area. And the logical conclusions about Clive's intentions were horribly unthinkable. So unsurprisingly, he was arrested and charged, but not with attempted rape or attempted murder. Instead, he was charged with a very strong case of disturbing the peace. Days later, Clive pled guilty as charged, and as ordered, he came to see me for counseling. I found Clive to be an extremely shy man who frequently stammered as he explained his crime. He often added essential details, but only upon direct questioning. Sinking back into my chair after I'd heard him out, I gave Clive a warm and accepting smile. Thank you. Thank you for sharing with me. I, I just have one last question. Were you planning on having sex with her before or after you'd killed her? Clive looked quickly away and then down at the floor for long seconds before, at last, in a soft and quiet voice, he admitted, after. Welcome to your debriefing. If you listen much to Sex Crime Central, you'll figure out pretty soon that ours is a very different view of true crime. How so? Well, most true crime stories are essentially crime porn, where the horrifying aspects of the crime form the core of titillation that attracts most listeners. 
Most true crime stories present crime as titillation. Instead, Sex Crime Central is offering you an opportunity to train your mind to lean in and to uncover the hidden and very human truths that explain sexual criminality. As Jung observed, we do not become enlightened by imagining figures of light, but by making the darkness conscious. Our goal here is not so much to entertain as it is to train the mind to remain aware of criminal conduct without needing to focus all of our attention attending to it. Please remember, our understanding of how a crime came to be committed is not the same as excusing that crime. If we can understand a sex crime, then we can learn to predict it. If we can learn to predict sex crimes, then we can go on to prevent them. We can't really say that we care about victims of sex crimes and then, because we're squeamish, remain unwilling to examine how they come about. That is selfish cowardice, not true morality, and ultimately entirely unhelpful. So what happened with Clive anyway? If you're thinking he's a monster different from the rest of us, then you're really not listening. Imagine being born into the same family with the same father. Imagine yourself in that family. Can any of us really say with confidence that we would never, ever do anything like Clive? Well, yeah, many of us would say that we never would, but consider the other variables. Yes, many of us have highly dysfunctional parents and horribly flawed fathers, but is that enough? Not for the judges I've ever met. Now, Mr. Ng, I grew up with a father just what you've described on the part of the defendant, and I never thought of doing what this man has done, so you really can't say that's what caused his sex crimes. Well, I've never said to anyone that anything ever caused a sex crime. What I've said is that virtually no one wants to grow up to become a sex offender, but that everyone who does suffers from an impaired capacity for making good decisions at the time they made the decision to commit the crime. They suffered from an impairment of judgment. And the question is, how does that impairment in their judgment come about? And to the judges like the one described above, what I say is, we are all the result of many influences and many variables. Some of us are born brighter than others. Some of us are less intelligent. And some of us have wonderful parents. Still others find exactly the right mentors or are blessed with loving and loyal friends who really help us become better men. No two of us are alike. And although I may have fallen in my life, there's never a guarantee that you would have fallen in the same way in similar circumstances. And yet, no one has to be a trained clinician to understand that our children benefit or suffer from one type of parent over another. Over adequate care, food, and clothing, compared to the poverty suffered by many. We don't have to be counselors to know that some lives are much harder than others, and that some lives set children up to behave poorly as adults. Since there is no dimension of the human experience that doesn't come with its own concomitant needs, our children need help in learning to manage their needs. 
In ancient times, Jewish rabbis taught that the man who failed to teach his son a trade taught him to steal. Children benefit from helpful instruction. How was Clive taught to manage his emotional needs? How was he taught to manage his sexual needs? How was Clive taught to manage his social needs? He wasn't taught one thing. His inept father taught him nothing except how to scorn success and how to misunderstood manhood. If we stop and think about it for a moment, would any of us ever consider such a life as Clive's sustainable? Of course not. So yes, inept parenting and ignorance were a large part of the setup leading to the near murder in Clive's case. But there's more. Clive actually met the diagnostic criteria for a very serious mental disorder. Now, we all know what a personality is, right? A personality is a pervasive pattern of interaction with the world around us. Normal people have personalities with a relatively large number of traits that help them to adapt to the changes around them and helps them to solve the problems that life presents all of us. Sadly, there are people who don't have normal personalities and they make up 19% of the population, about one out of every five people we've met in our entire lives. You've met many of these people in your own lifetime. Their personalities are abnormal because instead of having many traits, they are limited to a very small number of them. This alone means that they are less adaptive, but things can get much worse. Such individuals also don't see that their problems are largely the result of their own behaviors, of what they themselves do. In Clive's case, a particularly difficult one, his disorder usually creates problems not by what he does so much as what he fails to do. All of us, for example, have some shyness, a very common human trait. Clive's list of traits was largely limited to shyness alone. He was a living version of the shy channel, all shyness, all the time. We've all known such people. A few become sex offenders out of the loneliness they experience, which is, in turn, a logical outcome of their avoidance of others. Clive suffered from a serious level of avoidant personality disorder. This disorder prompted him to avoid potential friends and lovers because of his fear of being judged, of looking inadequate, or of looking foolish. Judgment. Inadequacy. Foolishness. J. I. F. Like the sweetened peanut butter, Jif, you can remember the specific fears that make up the personal hell of the avoidant by remembering that those three letters stand for the fear of judgment, the fear of looking inadequate, and the fear of appearing foolish. What could Clive have done different? How could he have prevented this crime from even happening, much less his risking going to prison for a murder? Well, I can tell you that once Clive was in therapy, he learned about his needs and how to face his fears, and he eventually became open to allowing himself to get close to others. Paraphrasing the rabbis, the parents who failed to teach their sons how to make friends and how to enjoy love teach their boys to live lives of chronic isolation and loneliness 
and for some, they teach their sons to become murderers and rapists. What could our community do to prevent sex crimes like this from taking place? We could begin to provide our young people with the sort of education about the wide breadth of human sexual needs and how the lessons on having successful romances follow those on how to make and keep good friendships. All of our children need to learn how to have friends and how to keep them. Our whole community, not just parents and teachers, need to notice those lonely, isolated members of our society who, despite being part of a social species, are just not social at all. Why not? Because they can't be trapped in their own limitations and ignorance. Clive got his hammer. Case closed. So many lost people. So many of us trying to find our way. Not surprisingly, a lot of us stumble to a stop at the station known as Sex Crime Central. One such visitor, Clive McDaniel, age 27. A quiet man who'd never broken a law in his entire rather forgettable and lonesome life. Clive didn't have to become a man driven to criminal thinking. He didn't have to become sexually perverse in his appetites. Both avoidable and inevitable, Clive's path led him to a crime where he nearly committed murder and unspeakable acts. Instead of lingering in the lobby, Clive was fortunate enough to eventually find his way out of Sex Crime Central. You're listening to Sex Crime Central with psychotherapist Stephen Ng. This has been an Ng Intellectual production with editing by Steve Cooper and original score by Octophonics. Follow Stephen on Twitter at Stephen Ng MFT or visit StephenNg.com for more information. Don't forget to subscribe to Sex Crime Central and leave us a review with your thoughts on each episode. We'd love to hear from you.